Hi everyone. <clears throat> it's an absolute joy to be here with you. I have not had the privilege of being here at Life Changes, and um, I want to say that Meryl is in LA. She She's gone back to university at the age of 52. She's gone to do a master's in marriage and family therapy. Most of what we do is with couples, and particularly leadership couples. And we realized that uh, the toolbox was a little empty. And uh, so God really pushed us into the program. Uh, And I say us because it's always a team effort. In our home, we speak of Team Merrill because that's what it is right now. So T and I, I have a 16-year-old son who's still at home. My girls are married. And uh, T and I know about T Merrill. That means she does very little of the duties at home. We do the laundry. We cook the food. We clean. We, it's T Merrill time. And um, the, uh, I think when Merrill gets, walks the plank, when she gets her qualification in May... I think there'll be lots of tears and joy in the family. I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of her. This is a lonely two years because we've traveled together. We've done life together. When we planted Glenridge, Meryl was 21 and still at university. And I was a 24-year-old Durban High School teacher. And um, so for all of these years, 30-some years, we've done it together. And now for her to be at home, I FaceTimed with her this morning and she just handed in her dissertation, 72 pages, and um, uh, she's amazing. She's my hero. She, she's my hero. She's done fabulously well, and she does send lots of love. Um, for those of you who don't know, I, I, I'm not a walking mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm a guy. I have a, I have a story. I uh, have a 35-year marriage, and God has been incredibly kind to Meryl and I. It hasn't always been an easy one because we're so ridiculously different. And I think our testimony is that if God can do it with us, He can do it with anyone. Ek is Afrikaaner, ek is van Vanneville Park af. My name is Christian Hendrik Philippus Wienand. And uh, my wife is English, of British descent. And there's very little we have in common outside of Jesus. And God loves those odds. Loves those odds. And we have found an incredible story. I love Meryl to bits. We have, uh, really, we have a remarkable story. I think, secondly, um, my kids, uh, my eldest daughter, Nass, and her husband have planted a church in Perth, Australia. Uh, the, she's 29 now. So from the age of 18, when she got married, she had four kids. She moved country, city, culture, and planted a church, and has done incredibly well. I say that because I am ridiculously proud of her. And I also say that when people say, gee, life is so hard with the maid and the gardener and parents who live down the road, I'm like, no, it's not hard at all. Have four kids, change country, change culture, change city, and plant a church. And Mark, her husband, told me at one stage she was cooking 120 meals a week because everything went through their home. I'm incredibly proud of my daughter. She's, she's an amazing girl. My second daughter is also married, and both of my, da- my daughters married the sons of church planters. So church planting is in the blood. It's what we do. It's what we know. Um, and Dana is a singer-songwriter. She, uh, she makes her money by writing music for TV, for ABC and MTV. And uh, I suppose my little braggy moment is that she just made the finals of a nationwide uh, songwriting competition in America. She was the only Californian who made it. She didn't win, unfortunately, 
But I said to her in my text, I was on the road, I was here. Um, and I had to text her and say, babe, if God says no to something, it means because he wants to say yes to something else. And uh, so, and then my boy is 16, he's got long blonde hair, and he's a surfer soccer player, and he thinks girls are cute. <laughs> Which is a relief, because if he didn't think they were cute, that would be another story altogether. <laughs> and I'm quite happy with this one right now. Um, so thanks for embracing us. Thank you for loving our friends. Uh, Glenridge is very dear to our hearts. We did have a dream. Someone asked me this, this, uh, this evening what it was like to plant a church, and, and we were romantically naive. We just said, let's plant a church. How difficult can that be? There was very little um, kind of strategic thinking and planning and launching. We just got together with a bunch of mates, and most of whom we're still friends with, and we just launched out, and the incredible privilege of leading that for 13 years and watching Rory and the team take it further and higher than we could ever have taken it is an incredible privilege. And so to be here with um, so many of you, with, with Wally and Shirley, whom I've known since the Durban Center days, and obviously with the VPs, plural, it's just a huge honor. Thank you. I want to commend you, and then I want to get to the scriptures, but I want to commend you for a, um, a great story. A, a great church planting story. Um, I believe in church planting from the bottom of my heart, establishing communities of love and light. That's what John the Apostle in 1 John speaks about. He speaks about God is love and God is light. And when we establish these communities, we're planting communities of light and love. That's so stark because we live in a world of darkness and of separation or hatred. And so we, we plant these churches with a, with a different culture. And just driving up here this evening and looking around the room, I'm an observer. Every Sunday, I'm in a different church somewhere in the world. So you, your radar's up. You're watching, looking all the time. And well done for buying into this adventure. Well done for buying into Gabe, wherever you are, Gabe, uh, for, for the new adventure. And, and the joy is that as the, the um, odometer or the speedometer goes like this, you will find the rhythm and the joy of seeing more and more communities of light and love being established in the shadowlands of our society. And there are way too many shadowlands of our society that need communities of light and love. And thank you. Thank you for this community that someone came and you bought into that story, and now you're doing it once again. So grab your Bibles, please. We're going to the book of Titus, which is, as you know, for those of you a little newer to the Bible story, it's a great story. It's a short little three-chapter account written between a father and his spiritual son. It's right towards the end of the book. If you, um, so if it's probably about 95%. If you turn your Bibles to the middle, just keep turning right, and you'll stumble across it at the end. I'm going to read just a, a couple of portions from the text, and then talk a little tonight about leadership in a volatile age. Leadership in a volatile age. So, have you got there yet? Titus chapter 1? Those of you who have your Bibles or your phones or your iPads or your something. If not, it doesn't matter. You can listen. And listen, don't listen to the reading of a religious passage. Read it, hear it through the ears of someone, a father writing to his spiritual son. He is sending him on an incredibly tough assignment as we'll see in just a moment, and hopefully I can help you bring application to where, to what you are doing and where you are ministering. 
And um, he sends him on an assignment to Crete. But for me, one of the most exquisite verses in the Bible is where he says to him right at the end, he says, uh, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. So front end is a father saying to this young gun, this young leader, he gives him an assignment, he gives him a mandate, he sends him to a tough context as we will see, and he says, in a year's time or thereabouts, will you join me in Nicopolis? It's a moment of incredible affection. It's a moment of incredible love. He's saying, come, it's going to be hard, it's going to be tough, it's going to be a challenge, but would you come, and I don't know what your position is on alcohol, so if it's an issue to you, then, then think I'm saying coffee. If, if it's okay, then have a beer with me. So, so you choose whichever piece you want to bring application to. It's an exquisitely intimate moment. I cannot tell you the privilege I've had over the years of sitting with church planters. I think of um, um, the couple who planted in New York. Derek and Kath Barson. In the 10 years that they'd led that little church plant, how many times I sat with them as they wept their way through. This is a hard city, Chris. This is a tough city. We don't know if we're going to make it. And we love them and pray with them and stand with them and say to them, meet us in Nicopolis for the winter. If you need to, which they did on occasion, come and fly and sit with us in California. Come and hang with us. They pleaded with us on one occasion. Could the, um, sorry, my mind is tired. Could Kath and their son come across because he just needs some friendship. I said, absolutely, let him come and hang with our son. Meet me in Nicopolis in the winter. It's an incredible act of divine kindness when God puts us on a robust, tough assignment. It means that between him and me, we're going to do it. We're going to get the job done. So having said all of that, let's read a couple of verses and we will dive into it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God my Savior. To Titus, my true son, or my true child, the ESV says, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may do the following, that you may put what remained in order, the NIV says that you may set in order that which is lacking, and appoint elders in every town. Then he describes that which we may or may not get to. Uh, Verse 10. And there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision... Skip down to verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then skip down again to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, I don't know about you, but as parents... Let me pray. Father, open the Scriptures to us. We do all of this for Jesus. And the fact that he loved the world so much that he left the privilege, the wonder, the beauty, the perfection, the union, the harmony, the wholeness of heaven to come and dwell amongst our brokenness, our confusion, our chaos, our rebellion, to create in us a redemption 
that will re-engage us with the great God's story. Thank you that you take our measly dreams and you close them down and then you put us on this huge story, this adventure of faith. And I pray tonight, Lord, that where some seeds have been swept over, they're on the driveway, they're not in the soil, that tonight that would perk up again. For those whose, whose leaves, whose, whose, whose flowers are lilting under the wind and the, the, the lack of rain and the sheer challenge of life, would you straighten those flowers? Let the flowers have a fragrance again and a beauty and a mystery and a wonder one more time. Rekindle in us your great assignment of leadership. And let, us, let the faith and the wonder of that be restored in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, what does Paul describe here? He describes, in my mind, and my translation of the text, three scenarios. Scenario, which way should I do it? Scenario number one is the nation. And, and he says of the nation, he says that Cretans themselves say they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Those three things, which is kind of interesting, um, but let's bring it a little closer to home. So, I minister in Southern California largely, and uh, for me, Southern California is driven by the idolatry of three things. Number one, it's rampant individualism. You only have to look to my broken-hearted uh, reality at who is running for presidency in our country, and you'll know how equally embarrassing it is for us. Tragic, actually. I want this to be a reality show that I can turn off. The only problem is not going away anytime soon. That a narcissistic billionaire who only thinks of himself, is posturing himself to be the representative of evangelicalism, and the evangelicals believe that is a tragedy beyond human description. So, so here the Cretans are. Paul saying, Titus, my boy, I believe so much in you that I'm sending you into this assignment, and the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Our story in Southern California is equally threefold. Number one, it is that people are rampant individualists. And I can tell you many a story, but I'd rather stay to the text. Secondly, there is an absorption with insatiable materialism. I remember the first time I sat with one of the deacons of the church we inherited, 1996, we were asked to go and replant a church, basically. So what I learned at Glenridge at planting, I had to go through this 14-year school of replanting. And I sat with the deacon, we had coffee, I was just getting to know everyone, and in passing he said to me, yeah, we have $30,000 of personal debt. So I said, was that your car? No, 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 it's just personal debt, you know, I needed a new surfboard, and the missus want to go and buy some clothes, and we want to go on holiday, and I'm thinking, wow, this is weird. This is really, really weird. I'm, I'm, I'm very, unc I, I'm strange for me. You can be a leader and have 30000 dollars worth of personal debt simply because you are absolutely absorbed with materialism? Yeah. Fine. Rampant individualism, insatiable materialism, and thirdly, the pursuance of pleasure. Pleasure and the pursuance of pleasure is not something you desire. It's a right. Don't take it from me. Don't you dare touch it. And so these are the things, and I use it illustratively, dear friends, because I wonder what it is for you. I wonder what it is in South Africa right now, because I'm not sure. If Paul was to say to Titus today, I'm sending you into South Africa, and these are the things 
The Cretans were liars, lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. The Californians are, 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 are in captivated, or captivated by rampant individualism, insatiable materialism, and the pursuance of pleasure. But let me talk to you about South Africa. I wonder what he would say. I don't know. I'm guessing he would say it's a nation ruined by racism. No, no, Chris, those days are over. No, they're not. I brought a young California couple here last year with me. He leads a church. He is very fair. I mean, he is white. He's Bostonian, uh, Irish descent. The problem is he brought his wife. And his wife, not only is she gorgeous, she reminds me of a Benetton model back in the day, this very eclectic beauty. But her dad is black, African-American, like the ace of spades. Mother's Irish. The problem with Jackie is she looks really fair-skinned. So they were sitting having some drinks with people in, Southern, in a particular city. And a couple of wines later, this couple started going off about those blacks. The Americans generally are pretty uncomfortable with the use of the word black anyway, but they understand that, you know, the word colored is offensive in America. It's not as offensive here, I don't think. But it just became worse and worse and worse the more the wine got traction. Until eventually, one of the other young pastors who was with them actually said, well, look, this is really awkward for me, but do you know her dad is black? And the couple froze. Why? Because racism is still deeply embedded in the soul of many a South African. I wonder. Would Paul say, Titus, I want you to be careful. I'm sending you into a very tough assignment and anchored into this assignment is rampant racism. And it still resides in the heart of people. Please hear me. I'm not an expat coming in. I'm telling you, I'm asking you, what would the three things be? Secondly, I wonder if he would address the issue of economic disparity. The rich are getting richer and the poor poorer. I wonder, when the overwhelming logic of the kingdom inverted, in other words, the kingdom of God is different, I wonder if he would say something like, I want you to go into that culture, but please be very aware, keep your spiritual antennae on, because you will find the rich very intriguing, very captivating. They will arrive with fancy cars and big stories of lots of money, but you are part of the kingdom of God. Now, I, I have no issue with Christians being wealthy. It's what we do with our wealth that makes it a kingdom or a non-kingdom conversation. Are you with me? Yeah. I'm probing you. I hope I'm helping you. Because we live in a different age, dear friends. And then the third thing I wonder, and I'm trying to read my writing here. I can't remember. I scribbled it. I can't remember. Now, my point is this. When Paul lays out the qualifications for leadership, if you take, and I don't want to talk about the negatives because I want to get to some cool things, but, but, but if you take those uh, 5, 6, 7, 11 things, Cretans are, then he speaks here and he says, now into the context of the church community, they're, they're insubordinate. Oh, I know what that is now. They're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, and they're legalists. He says, now, not only is the church... I can't, 
I mean, I, I want to say, do I, how could I send anyone to this gig? Culturally, they're liars, evil brutes, uh, and, and lazy gluttons. But the best is yet to come, Titus. When you enter the church, the church is insubordinate. They'll just tune you straight, like Aussies. I love preaching in Australia. They're never nice. Afterwards, if you preach a lemon, they say, that wasn't great, mate, was it? You could have done better than that, mate. I didn't like that. I didn't like what you said right there. That's where my kids are ministering. They're not nice. They're not nice. At least they're honest. I prefer that than someone give you the, you know, the charismatic right shoulder, three taps, and then the, in the car afterwards. I'd rather them say, Chris, that sucked. I'd rather. Then I could hug him and say, brother, thank you. It hurts like crazy, but thank you that you're honest. I don't want a smile and a hug and three pats, charismatic style. And then I know when you get into the car with the missus, it's yaga, 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 yaga. And that's what Paul says to Titus. Buddy, listen, this church that you're going to, because it existed, they are insubordinate. They will tune you. They're empty talkers. You know those people. Man, let me tell you, they are experts in running the church. Hey, VP, I think if you just do this in the church, dude, you know, I have a really horrible habit of looking over a man's shoulder. And when someone gives lots of opinions, but I check nothing, the first thing I look at is wife. I have a really bad habit of doing I look at a man's wife because that will tell me if he knows how to love a bride. Please don't give me opinions. Please, you're an empty talker. If I don't see your wife blossom, if I don't see your wife radiant, if I don't see your wife loved and hugged and cared for, if I don't see your wife speaking of, gee, you know, I'm so embarrassed. It gives me so many flowers. And, and, and you know what? Date nights are like crazy. It's like you're always surprising me. You know what? I'm going to listen to you about the bride of Christ because you know how to treat the bride. But when your missus is down here and she's beat up and you're always whinging about her and the food is horrible and the laundry hasn't been done and the house is untidy, buddy, better you shut up about this bride because I ain't listening. I ain't listening. He says the church is insubordinate. They're full of empty talkers. People have a gazillion opinions. Gazillion. They're deceivers. They spin the truth. They make, it, they make it sound exactly like they want it in this moment. It isn't true truth. It's deception is taking enough truth and making it sound like they want it to sound now. So the same idea, they will say one thing to me and another thing to Nick. That's deception. True truth is it's always the same. Always. Can you imagine sending one of your boys into this gig? It gets better. That's the country. That's the church. Now listen to how Paul describes the individual believers. This is a, this is a beauty. He says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Verse eight sixteen. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Anyone volunteer for that gig? Anyway, you know, I'd love to go minister in that church. I suspect when the resumes go out, no one's saying, can I be a worship leader at that church? No one puts their hands up. Ladies and gentlemen, leadership in a volatile 
age. My third point about South Africa right now, and honestly, it's just, a, it's just as I was laying on the bed this afternoon prepping for tonight, not only I asked the question about rampant racism, the issue of economic disparity, and thirdly, a culture of anti-authority. I mean, just the way we treat the cops or the rules on the road. <laughs> when I come back, I also think that r- r- rules on the road are like just guides, they're hints. If you want to stomp, you're welcome to, but hey, you don't have to if you don't want to. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's just a little hint. It's probably a good idea to stop here. In California, I stop because I've done wah, 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 hands on the steering wheel, sir. Can I have your driver's license and registration, please? Hang on, I'll get the gun out. Excuse me. Sorry, sorry. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't know. I don't know. But if it's in our streets, the way we drive, the way we do business, it's going to be in the church. That anti-authority. We do not respect authority. We believe we have the right to undermine authority all the time and any time. I may be wrong, but maybe I'm not. So, let's get the negative behind us. Let's get to the good stuff. What are some of the key leadership pieces that Paul says should frame a volatile age where we lead with another spirit, we lead with another deal? So, here here it is. Are you with me? No one hates me. No one's going to blow me up or be horrible or unkind to me. I I love this. The first thing Paul says about himself, he chooses what he wants Titus to imitate. He says, I, Paul, a servant of God. You know how funny God is? Now, I'm 57. I've been doing this since the age of 24. God has never, let me say it this way. He he just won't let me stop serving. So a year ago, God speaks to Meryl and I, go and help a church plant in Pasadena. Now, I'm just being very honest. I've been doing this a long time. Started preaching on the streets when I was 18. It's a long time. So how many of you know church plant equals set up, tear down? How many of you know it means hanging the curtains because they want it cool and sexy in L.A.? And, 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 and Persian carpets and couches and, and coffee spaces. And there's 40 people in the church. So how many of you know I'm stacking chairs again? Isn't God fabulous? He says, son, you will always serve. If you don't get the service part right, none of this, the rest of this matters. I, Paul, a servant. Titus, I want you to imitate this. Create a new alternative culture. You are facing people who are insubordinate and disobedient and divisive and, and, and devious. I want you to come with the opposite spirit, son. I want you to be a servant just like me. Set up and tear down. You put up the chairs. You set the chairs away. You sweep. You leave. You lock the door when it's all said and done. I just smiled at God. I looked at him. I said, for, for real? Dude. I already get pensioners discounted at the movie. Do I have to still put up chairs? And th- yep, you do. Yep, that's what you do. When we lose the joy of serving the bride, something goes wrong. Do you know how much fun it's been, honestly, for Tian and I to serve Meryl? Honestly, it's been one of the most best times I've ever had to disciple my son. Because how many of you know when you're 16, it's really not cool to serve? 
And I said to him the other day, I said, boy, you fulfill acts of service. You ain't a servant. Here's the good news. When I'm finished with you, you'll be a servant. So when you have attitude, how many of you know your list has just got longer? Here's the deal. You moan about making your bed. You know what? Bed plus laundry. Any questions? Any gig here? And can I just say this, and forgive me for stepping on toes, and I could just be a grumpy old man. Please don't let the maid or the help in the home do what your kids should do. Please. My, just my thought. Because I see my son's cousins who just drop it because the maid will pick it up. I think, no, 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 no. He's got to learn to manage his space. He's got to learn to hang up his clothes because from the age of 14, our kids do their own laundry. Comes home, soccer, sometimes two soccer practices a day, morning and evening. He comes home, a pile of laundry. I said, buddy, you, you better get that laundry in or it's not going to be dry tonight. I know, Dad. Laundry in. Clean. Laundry out, hang it up, tumble dry. See, if we don't teach them to serve at home, why are they suddenly going to come the servants outside of the home? My job is to disciple my son and my daughters to be servants of the Most High. And I'm given, don't over-spiritualize discipleship. I'm going to disciple you. We're going to open the Bible. Now, I'm going to disciple you. Do your own laundry. Pack the dishwasher. Unpack the dishwasher. You don't go to bed at night with all of your books on the dining room table. That dishonors your mother. The table is hers. It's her space. Comprende, senor, senoritas. See, because Paul says, Titus, in order to go and minister into this place, I think he's saying, you've got to learn to serve like I am of the Most High. Because when you serve the Most High, you serve His bride with love and with affection. Can I really boast about me for just a moment? Can I just do one little miniature boast? So, before I left, I cooked a whole lot of meals for Meryl for the freezer. So that in the busyness of her study, she could go to the freezer, take out a Ziploc bag, and there's a meal, and it's cooked, and it's ready. So just touch the law of microwave, and then it's a meal there. You know what I'm saying? Are you with me? Because if I can't serve my bride, how will I serve his bride? Are you with me? And God's given me this unique opportunity to serve my bride and to show my son how to serve my bride. Because one day, a cute little floozy is going to come up to me or a little, a little I don't know if it's going to be blonde or but she's going to come and she say, Dad, thank you for teaching Tion to serve. See? Why? Because I'm dealing with a culture of rampant individualism. Every kid in LA feels they're entitled. I don't know what they're entitled to, but they feel entitled. So I say, buddy, I've got that. I've, I'll show you how to do that. The trash can. It's not my job. It's not your mother's job. It's yours. Any questions? You the trash man in our family. You the guy. Every bin throughout the house. Go down and we've got a five-bedroom house. You go and empty it. You put it all in the trash can. You separate recyclables from, from the other gump. You put it into three bins, yard. Uh, da -da. You put it out in the street. And when you come home from school, you put that, those bins back in there. Why? Because I want my son to be a servant. Why? Because Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of the Most High God. Why must I give him to a pastor one day who's going to throw up his arms in despair saying, Tion is the absolute non-servant. His wife will come to him and say, Hey, Pops, Tion does nothing at home. No, no, he does. He does. 
Why? Because we're creating an alternative culture. Evil brutes, lazy gluttons, liars. We come with the opposite spirit. The second thing in here, how are we doing? We all right? I'm so sorry I've messed with you guys because the book is heard. The book is made big notes tonight. You get home tonight, lacquer lacquers. Big pillow talk now, okay? I will have salmon and egg on Saturday morning on toast. Any questions? You heard the brother. He's a fancy brother from LA. I've got it Sunday, Saturday morning. It's right there. I've messed with your world. I'm so sorry. The second thing we see here about Paul's instruction, he says this. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle is kind of a technical term, so let's not worry about the technical term for a moment. The word comes from a Greek word, apostolos, which means to be sent on mission. So let's play with that for just a moment. In a context where people are ill-disciplined, where people are disobedient, detestable, unfit for any good work, Paul says, we come with the opposite spirit. We have been sent on a very specific assignment. We have a mandate. We have a mission. Titus, I'm sending you on a mission to set in order that which is lacking and appoint elders in every town. There is a clear sense of mission. Paul had a mission to be sent out. It's a maritime phrase. To be sent out on mission like a ship going to sea and coming back. Titus, you have a mission. And so my question to you is, in an age of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, in an age of rampant racism, economic disparity, and anti-authority, he says, you, sir, have a mandate to come with the opposite spirit, to be different from. Let me use an analogy which may help you. In our appointing of leaders, and you all leaders, you are led to believe, or soon to be, what happens is that we create a generic leadership code. And I think what Paul does here is he creates a very specific leadership image. And the leadership image is those who are not vulnerable to the things of their age. So the easy way to apply that is, if I have a church in Vegas, I cannot have leaders in my church who are vulnerable to two things, to pornography and to gambling. I cannot. Because at some point in time, they're going to get caught up again. So if Paul was writing this to Titus, who's going to Vegas to plant a church, he is saying, Titus, excuse me, you must be very aware that when you appoint leaders, you cannot appoint leaders who are vulnerable to the things that hold that sin city captive. So if you agree with me, then I have to say to you, if God has sent you in this church on mission, then you cannot be vulnerable to the things that surrounding cultures hold people captive in. So if, I'm reading it right, and I'm not trying to be funny or evasive, if the overriding cultural critique, and I've just had a delightful young American travel with me, he's just gone home, very sharp, very gifted guy, author, speaker, uh, leads a very large church, and there are some things that intrigue him. And all three of those things he mentioned. He's very interested. Why are so many churches still white, Chris, when the population is overwhelmingly black? John Mark, I'm sorry, I haven't got an answer for you. But that does mean that if we're going to create a church with the opposite culture, a church on a specific mission and assignment, it is a church that is not at all held captive to that same sense of racial preference or prejudice. Comprendes, Mendes? 
So we create a culture. I'll be, I'll be just, can I have six minutes? Have you got booty time for six? So Paul says, be like me in a way. I don't think I'm butchering the text. You need to be servants who create a different culture. You need to be very clear on the mission that God has. And the selection of leaders are not those who are vulnerable to these things. Can I speak on the economic disparity? Those of you who are wealthy, enjoy your wealth. There's no harm. It's what we do with it. It's whether we apply a kingdom logic of it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the conversation. It's not, gee, Chris, you know, I'm awkward. I drive a Land Rover. It's 10 years old, but I love my Land Rover. I'll probably drive it into the grave. It was an incredible story of how I got it. So I'm not in all, at all pointing a finger or being critiquing those of you who have wealth and means. What do you do with it is the conversation. Okay? Servant, specific assignment, two more things. Um, three, three, three. Okay, let me move my booty quickly. Servant, apostle on mission. Thirdly, he says this. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith. I'm a servant and I'm on mission for the sake of the elect. The faith of the elect. We are, a, we are incredibly privileged to be perpetually on a story of faith. My, my, my daughter is a singer-songwriter, has been helping a church plant out, and uh, she was cutting back her hours so that she can write. She's writing a, a pop album for a young American idol winner, uh, a finalist. And uh, so she, we sat, I still have a date with dad. I have had since my girls were small. And when they got married, I said to their husbands, I ask nothing of you but that I can still have a date with dad with my girls. And the husbands agreed. So Dane and I were having our date. This was the other day. She was feeling a bit tender. She doesn't mind me telling the story because she was feeling it's quite a big step to step into that pop world because she actually really writes, loves writing music for TV. And I said, you know, Miss D, I said, one of the privileges of our Christian walk is that we always live by faith. The just, not, not just are saved by faith, but live by faith. And I said, this is what I said to her. I said, baby, when we lift our heads up, Jesus is beckoning us out of the boat. The only problem is we're fishermen. We know that to stand on water means we go down. Everything he's beckoning us to is counterculture and counterintuitive. It really makes sense. It really makes sense. Listen, if I was God, I would have sent me to Dubai. I'm Afrikaans. I'm a multicultural guy. I should have been the guy. God sends me to America, and I don't want to be in America. It's counterintuitive. God puts us sometimes where we don't want to be because we know that the water is not going to hold us. Are you with me? I'm trying to rush without losing the point here. Here's my question for you. What is your current faith story? What is the mountain God's called you to run at? Meryl at 52 goes back to university. Are you kidding me? She hasn't studied for over 30 years. Hasn't studied. Her, her, her typing is Facebook and email with two fingers. And she steps into a master's program. You kidding me? I had to walk her off the edge more than a few times. She said, babe, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I said, baby, the just shall live by faith. That's your mountain. That, that, you, know, you run at that mountain, girl, and we are here. You want water? We'll run water to you. You hungry? We will bring food to you. 
If you need typing, we'll type for you. You need editing, we'll edit for you. That's your mountain. Run at it with all of your heart. Because if Jesus beckons you out of the boat, get out and walk on the water. And just as the wave overwhelms you and Jesus grabs you, puts you back on the boat, he says, all right, you have some dry clothes. And just when you feel lacquer, 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 he says, come. You're kidding me. I've done that one. It's like Groucho Marx when they said, have you read, a, you know, there's a newspaper for you, sir. He said, no, I've read one of those. It's like, it's like I don't need to read anymore. I've done my walking on water, Jesus. Now, but Paul says, I am who I am for the sake of the faith of the elect. Here's my question to you. What's your current faith project? What is it? Is it finance? Is it time? Is it energy? Is it relationships? Is it someone God's brought into your world that you want to give up on? There's a young girl who was molested by a youth pastor. Long story, I won't bore you with, of how I've re-engaged in her world. So when she first met me and heard I was a pastor, she would avoid me. Literally avoid me. And every day I went, every time I went to her house, she's the sister of one of Tion's mates. Every time I went to her house, I would go and find Jess. Hey, Jess, how are you doing? Fine. Great to see you, girl. She's my faith project. Never spoke to me. Standing watching Tian play soccer, her brother was there. She arrives out of the blue. Doesn't come, hasn't come since. I said, oh, nice to see you. She says, how many kids you got? I thought, the game's on, sister. So I've got three. So I saw her fiddling on her computer the other day. I said to Meryl, I found the end to her heart. I'm going to give her a paper to type for me because she needs the money. Went online, Googled how much per page. So I said, okay, Jess, would you type a paper for me? I'll pay you. She said, okay. I grabbed everything I could on Joseph. Everything I could find that I've ever preached on Joseph. And I put it together in a grubby pile of papers. And I purposefully did not write in any scripture. She had to look them up. And every quote I could find that affected her life, I put that quote in there. And she has typed it, and she has not done a fabulous job, so I sent it back with corrections. And she's doing it over and over and over again. And she said, you know, I'm not a Christian. I just smile. I said, honey, didn't say this. God's on your number. You are my faith project. And you know what? I'm paying for it. Not the system or the church. I'm paying for it. If no one ever reads that document, I don't care. But Jesse Smith is going to find Jesus. And that's my faith project right now. Okay. I've taken a lot of time. You've been incredibly gracious. How can I land this? This is just an exquisite book. Knowledge of the truth, according with God to godliness, hopes of eternal life. I'm not. I, I, you, you've been wonderful. It's Thursday night. You've been amazing. I want to land with this. Paul says, and I read it so that we know it's from the Scripture, which accords for godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began.
I want to land with this. One of the great hope pieces we have is that eternity has begun and one day heaven will come, the heavens will come down and eternity will collide with this temporal age. Eternity is in our hearts. And one of the great things we as leaders can do both in proclamation and in service is to live out this notion that we are laboring for a time yet to come. I had an evening with Francis Chan. I don't, do any of you know him? Very special, very sweet evening. And he was a man who had a church of 4,000 in the valley, which means north of L.A. And one day he was sitting with his elders, and they planted it small, and it just grew big. He's a huge gift, wonderful man. Seven kids. And um, they took the Bible as an eldership team, and they said, does what we do reflect this? And tragically, their consensus was no. It doesn't. So, so well, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? So eternity breaks into the temporal. We're actually going to find that everyone in the whole nation and beyond is a Oh, Francis Chan, well, Cornerstone, we'll listen to the podcast. Oh, amazing, amazing, amazing. And actually, then, raw, naked conclusion was, we are not doing what this book says. And so he resigned. The week he resigned, 2,000 people left the church. How many of you know they weren't building a very good church? By his words, not mine. He went to China, spent because he's Chinese, of Chinese descent. He spent a number of months going meeting the underground church in China and came back and felt God said, Francis, I want you to pastor the neighborhood. And God plonked him in one of the poorest neighborhoods in San Francisco. He said, what? I want you to pastor the neighborhood. And he went from apartment block to apartment block in the poor, broken, gang-infested, convict-driven parts of San Francisco. Hi, my name is Francis. Is there anything I can pray for you? It's when eternity breaks into this temporal world and we realize what we're doing is not for now. It's for then. It's a fabulous story when he speaks of, they've got a number of congregations, but he says the one is led by a Google executive and another young guy. Except this young guy is not a Google executive. On his eyelids are tattooed, tattooed F-U. Because his brother was killed in a gang war. And they cut the gang logo out of his brother's chest. And he went and had that tattooed on his eyelid because he's going to die young. And when they look at the coffin, that's the last image he wanted people to remember. F-U. Went to prison. Got radically saved. He's now co-leading a congregation with a Google exec who earns a gazillion dollars. His girlfriend, and this is where I end, who has his child, who was also in prison, came out. Both came to faith. And they said, actually, we want to get married. But she said, can you wait, please? Because I don't know how to be a wife. In fact, I don't know how to be a mother. Can someone teach me? And so Francis took this woman and her little girl in to their house, three-bedroom house with seven kids, 
And Lisa said, I will teach you how to be a wife and how to be a mother. Ladies and gentlemen, that's when eternity breaks in on the temporal. That's when we understand that being leaders is not a space we hold at a gathering, but a life we agree to journey. And when eternity really birth is birthed in our heart, we live, honestly, I'd rather be at home. My daughter sang at the Troubadour the other night in the finals of this competition that was televised. I was here. My wife needs me. I'm here. When eternity breaks into our heart, there's a new alignment of our soul to things that have eternal implications. Leadership in a volatile age that deals with the challenges as the text describes is extremely sacrificial but incredibly satisfying. I end with this. Titus, join me in Nicopolis in the winter. And the picture for me is this young guy who's given it his best. And Paul sits a bit like George or somewhere is the picture in my mind. He sits on the veranda having his coffee waiting for Titus to arrive. And one day the bus stops and this bent over jacket enrobed young man gets off and he shuffles his way up the road and Paul says, is it, is it, is it, is it, is it? And then he sees it's his boy. And he runs down the little cobbled streets and he runs and he puts his arm around him and he loves him and he loves him because he knew what he was sending him to. And words are few as he ushers him back inside the house, gets him warm, has a bath, sits around the fire. And when Titus is ready, Titus says to him, this has been really, really hard. And Paul says, I know. I know. Ladies and gentlemen, leadership is not a cushy place of privilege. It's a radical space of laying our lives down because we love the bride and we love Jesus enough. God bless you.